0: Psalm 68 rehearses the history of God's intervention on the part of his people. It demonstrates that God is always on the move, creating, walking, sending, calling, commanding, defending, and defeating. During their wilderness wanderings, God led Israel through the wilderness and defeated all enemies who stood in her path. According to the superscription of Psalm 68, David is the author. As such, the likely writing of this hymn of victory is either the conquering of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5, or the moving of the ark to Zion in 2 Samuel 6. Uniquely, Paul applies Psalm 68 verse 18 to Jesus' ascension in Ephesians 4 8. Jesus' ascension is the greatest victory in human history. It declares that Jesus was victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And because he is victorious, his people too will be victorious. And so we can sing Psalm 68, this hymn of victory. Because of the length of this psalm, we're going to divide it into at least two parts. For our time today, we will look at verses 1 through 18. But if we outline the psalm, we begin with the providence of God in verses 1 to 6, the providence of God, the power of God, verses 7 to 18, the power of God. Then we go to the progress of God in 19 to 27, the progress of God. And then finally, the program of God in verses 28 to 35. Again, today we're looking at just the first 18 verses. Let's begin with verses 1 through 6 and the providence of God. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad, let them exalt before God. Yes, yes. Let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exalt before him, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. Is God in his holy habitation? God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoner into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Now verse 1 comes from Numbers chapter 10 and verse 35, where whenever the ark of of the covenant god's portable throne was being carried into battle moses would cry out rise up o lord let your enemies be scattered and so the call for god to arise or to stand up is a call for him to get up off of his throne because his enemies are at hand the request in verse 2 is that god would drive the enemies away as smoke now we we have a picture here a metaphor Okay, just as, as, as when you see smoke rising, if you were to blow on it, the, the smoke would scatter. So David cries out for God to scatter their enemies. He asks that the enemies of God would be like melting wax before the fire. Then he concludes, let the wicked perish before God. Literally, let them die or be destroyed. Who are the wicked? The wicked are those who hate God, and they are to be destroyed in the battle. Look at the contrast, though. Let the righteous be glad. Who are the righteous? The righteous are those who are in a right relationship with God, those who are in a covenant relationship with God. They can rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness or with exceeding joy. The psalm begins with a call to battle. And when God acts, the wicked vanish like smoke and melt like wax. But the righteous, those who belong to God, will rejoice we see god's triumph and we join in rejoicing with these same people when we come to god in christ in christ we know that our enemy of sin of satan of death has been defeated and vanquished on the cross and that jesus is victorious and in him we too have victory Now, in the context of joy, the psalmist issues a call to praise God to his name. Now, when we call on the name of God, that's a unique phrase. It's a phrase that we first see in the book of Genesis, uh, and it refers to uh, worship. It refers to praying to God, praising God, and proclaiming God. Three aspects of worship. And so when we call upon the name, there's an aspect of worship here, but there's also something else, because when we refer to the name of God, we're talking about the character or reputation of God. And so the psalmist is calling on, is coming to worship God, but he's denoting something about God's presence, something about his character, something about his reputation. He says, lift him up who rides on the clouds. Now this is an interesting statement here, Uh, depicting God as the one who rides upon the clouds the Canaanite culture around Israel worshipped Baal Baal now Baal was called the cloud rider and so when David invokes the phrase let him who rides upon the clouds he's not referring to Baal He's referring to God, and what he's doing here is he's intending this as a polemic against Baal. He's contrasting Baal with the true God, Yah. Yah is the true cloud rider. It is Yah who brings the rains, and we are to rejoice before Yah. Here's the God of history. Here's the God of nature who is both redeemer and creator. He is the true living God. Verse 5 through 6, the psalmist relates more about God. First, he says that he cares for the orphans, the father of the fatherless. He cares about the widows. He's a defender of widows. The word defender is is one who judges or protects. He protects the widows. He is the one who takes up their cause And he is in his holy habitation. In other words, uh, this refers to heaven. So God takes up the cause of the orphan. He takes up the cause of the widow from heaven. He also cares for the lonely. That's the alien, the stranger, the person in exile. And he makes a home for them. And moreover, the prisoners are released into prosperity. But notice. Notice what happens to the rebellious, to the wicked They die, or uh, excuse me, they dwell in a dry land. You know, we can't help but even think of the wilderness wandering of Israel, how that wicked generation who refused to follow Moses into into the promised land, they all died in the wilderness. Hebrews tells us they were a rebellious sort. And even though they numbered themselves amongst the people of God, they really weren't. They were the wicked. So God destroys the wicked, God controls nature, and God defends the poor and the oppressed. And you know, when we read Mark chapter 1, verse 21 to 27, if we read Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, we see Jesus as well condemning the wicked, controlling nature, and defending the poor and oppressed. Verse 7 through 18, uh, we'll look now to the power of God. Verses 7 through eighteen. 18, oh O God, when you went forth before your people... When you marched through the wilderness, say La The earthquake, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provide it in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. The woman who proclaims the good tidings are a great host. King of armies flee, they flee. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver, and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive captives. You receive gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. We have a a recollection here of how God cared for Israel during the wilderness wanderings. And this historic memorial gives a basis for the assertions that follow in these verses notice god went out before the people like a general like a commander of troops moses described him similarly in exodus chapter 15 he described he said the lord is a man of war pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea god marched with israel through the wilderness and what the earth shook he was a mighty god and the point is the that the uh, nature responded to god's presence the heavens also dropped rain, and Sinai itself was moved. And we think of the when God came and dwelt on the mount, how there was thundering and quaking and, and lightning and so forth. Nature responded to the presence of God. So much so that the people themselves trembled. The psalmist reports in verse 9 that God sent a plentiful rain. Now, this could describe the showers in the autumn season, but it could also be a metaphor for the manna with which God fed Israel in the wilderness. And thus, through the manna, God established his inheritance, were confirmed. In other words, because they saw God keeping his promise to feed them, they knew that God's promise to bring them to the promised land would be true. That was their inheritance. Uh, And the blessing of the inheritance, or the promised land, came when it was weary. You know, Israel wandered for 40 years through that wilderness. And finally, after 40 years, 40 wearying years, they came into the land while they were weak. God took a poor people and brought them through the wilderness into a land flowing with milk and honey. This was an act of grace in giving this gift to Israel. And the psalmist says that it was out of God's goodness that Israel lived. The psalmist then gives a prophetic word, an oracle from God, concerning the destruction of kings and their armies. You see, now God only leads his people and acts on his behalf of his people. He also speaks. And when the Lord gives a word, gives an utterance, gives a command, well, we've got to respond. Israel responded, and they did so by announcing the revelation that we have in verses 12 to 13. The content of the Lord's revelation indicates uh, or implies, uh, again, God as a military conqueror. The kings of armies flee him. Here, here he announces that Israel is going to be victorious, and in response, the kings flee. In fact, twice it says the army, the kings flee, they flee, adding to that emphasis there. Israel divides the spoils in which uh that that are left behind from these kings, from these armies. Again, this is a consequence of victory. Verse thirteen is uh is is difficult here because the first part of verse thirteen is an idiomatic expression for laziness. And it's probably a reference to some of the tribes that refused to go to war. Uh they were those who lie down among the sheafholds and Again, we, we uh, if you go back through jo, part of jo, latter part of Joshua and into some of the judges, you'll find the uh, the mention of some of the tribes who, you know, well we have our land. We're go- not going to go fight anymore, and left the other tribes to fend for themselves. Nevertheless, even though they were lazy, they did enjoy the spoils of battle, and uh, like a silver and gold statue of a dove. Now, verse twelve and thirteen receives confirmation in verse fourteen. The God the Almighty has scattered the kings as he promised. And it was so spectacular, he, the psalmist says it's as spectacular as the snow in Zalman. Now, note here the title Almighty. That is a unique name that uh, is only used in Scripture of God. We see it in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3. The Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 6.18, the Greek form is used, the panokrator, the all-powerful one. Now, Mount Zalman is, according to Judges 4.9, located near Shechem. And, uh, you know, they're describing, you know, look at the beauty of the snow sitting on the mountain and, and the way you wonder at that, the way you're in awe of that, and now consider how great God is. Should we not be in awe of him we see in these verses that the call to god back in verse one to go to battle is based on his promise and his past performance in defeating the enemy as recorded uh, in the old testament again history should confirm our faith and history should inform our prayers we pray because of history we pray because of what god has done in the past Next, the psalmist addresses Mount Bashan. Now, Bashan is uh, located east of the Jordan uh, between Mount Hermon and uh, the Yarmuk River. The verse begins, the mountain of God is in the mountain of Bashan. We could also render it or translate it that the mountain of the gods is the mountain of Bashan. And we could translate it that way because the word translated here, God, is, is the plural of Elohim. So, again, it could be uh, the, what we call the majestic plural, okay? Elohim could be referring to the God, or it could be referring to gods. Now, more than likely, I'm going to take it this way, that the mountain of Bashan is the mountain of the gods, okay? And Mount Zion is the mountain of God, uh, because when you when you look, read through this, you see that uh, the mountain, the peaks of the mountain of Bashan are jealous at Mount Zion, okay? They're envious here, okay? Uh, verse 16, we see that they have envy. And so, you know, again, David's using these word pictures here. Now, obviously, these are false gods. They're not real. But he gives them this anthropomorphic sense of, you know, okay that mountain of Bashan over there, those mountain peaks, that's all the false gods, and they're envious of Mount Zion and the one true God. Now, it's interesting because, you know, Mount Zion was not the greatest peak, okay? It wasn't the tallest or the largest peak, but yet it was wondrous, it was grand, its greatness was manifested because of who dwelt among it or upon it. And interesting here, it talks about the chariots, Okay, 20,000, even thousands of thousands. Now, chariots were typically a two-wheeled horse-drawn vehicle of war. And, you know, for the Israelites, they're very familiar with the chariot. When Pharaoh pursued them, uh, 600 uh, chariots pursued them uh, through the Red Sea. But these chariots are unique because these chariots are carried by his angels. And so we see here, upon well, Mount Zion, not only does God dwell, but his heavenly host or his heavenly army. Remember when Elisha was surrounded by the armies of Syria, they in turn were surrounded by the armies of God. 2 Kings 6.17, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so in the midst of armies, the armies of angels, God dwells, in Mount Zion, as in Sinai in the holy place. It's interesting, just as he dwelt in Sinai, now he's dwelling in Zion. Uh, And he is holy, he is set apart, he is sanctified, he is lifted up above all others and all else. Uh, And it's from there that he takes his captives and receives gifts among men. Now the word gifts here is tributes or offerings. Uh, These came from the rebellious uh, these were collected as the spoils of war. And now what's interesting is that in Ephesians 4, 8, Paul cites Psalm 68, verse 18, and applies it to Christ's triumph. Now, when Christ died, we know that his body went in the tomb, and his, bo- his soul, spirit, went down into Sheol. And we've talked about this before, and I'll just keep it brief if I can, but Sheol is, has two compartments, okay? The two compartments, an upper compartment, lower compartment, separated by a a, a vast chasm, and there's water in this chasm. A river runs between the two. The upper chamber is known as Abraham's bosom or paradise. It is the place where all the righteous who died, where their soul spirits went after their death, and they were imprisoned there, if you will, okay? Don't think of prison in the negative sense, but they were kept there, they were held there. Why? Well, Christ had not yet died, and the, they couldn't be absent from the body and present with the Lord, because sin had to be dealt with. The lower chamber is the, what we would know commonly as hell, where the place of fiery torment, okay? Recall in Luke 16 that the uh, rich man was in hell, lifted up his eyes, and saw Abraham across the river. Uh, Father Abraham sent forth Lazarus that he can come and dip his finger in the river, and that he may come over here and cool my tongue. Uh, Of course, Abraham, uh, no, that can't happen. Lazarus isn't coming over there and calling anybody's tongue. You're tormented because of your choice to reject the Savior. So when Christ goes down there, he goes into, into Abraham's bosom, into paradise. 72 hours later, when he resurrects, he takes the prisoners of paradise with him. Remember, he went there. He he defeats Satan's sin and death. He conquers hell. And he ascends. Now, when he ascends, the gospels record for us that throughout Jerusalem they began to see the spirits of departed loved ones. That was these righteous individuals who had been kept imprisoned, if you will, in Sheol, in the upper chamber in Paradise. They came up. Now Christ comes, he appears in the In the garden, near the Garden Tomb, to the women, to Mary Magdalene in in, in particular, "Touch me not," he tells her, "For I am not yet ascended." What happens here is he immediately ascends into heaven. Okay, on the heels by probably sometime between six p.m. and six a.m. Six p.m. Saturday, six a.m. Sunday morning, Jesus ascends into heaven with those Old Testament saints. He sets captivity free. As Paul, when, as Paul says when he quotes Psalm 68, 18. Christ is, is victorious. He's leading a victory parade into heaven, and here come the prisoners that he has set free behind him. And then he gave, gives gifts. He shares in the spoils of his victory. And the gifts he gives are, are gifts given to the church. Not individuals, but to the church. He gives the gift of apostle prophet evangelist pastor teacher these four gifts are offices or functions within the church that individuals are called to but no one's gifted with apostleship no one's gifted with prophet no one's gifted as evangelist no one's gifted as pastor teacher people are given other spiritual gifts from the holy spirit but they are but then those gifted people are called to those particular offices Again, Christ gave those gifts when he ascended. Uh, To wrap it up, Christ immediately descends back to earth uh, and spends the next 40 days on earth before his final ascension into heaven. And just like God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, so now our risen Lord Jesus, Yeshua, has conquered his foes, he's ascended to his throne. He's given gifts. He's given trophies of his victory to the church. His abounding grace is evident and triumphant uh, uh, in each and every church. He gives gifts, and these gifts he's given make his former enemy now know that he has been victorious. And so we can rejoice. We can sing this hymn of victory as we look around and see all that Christ has done. We'll continue this psalm next time. We'll pick up with verse 19. We'll pick up with the uh, uh, progress of God in verses 19 to 27, and then we'll conclude with the program of God in verses 28 to 35. Father God, I thank and praise you for your victories, your victories throughout history, And the greatest victory you accomplished was through your son on the cross. I thank you, Father, that he ascended into heaven. And Father, when he ascended, he took those Old Testament saints who'd been held captive in paradise and set them free, brought them into heaven. Because of that, Father, we know that today when we die, we'll be absent from the body and present with you. I thank you, Father, that he's given gifts to the church. And that, Father, as we see those gifts function throughout history and presently, We are reminded, Father, of the victory that Jesus accomplished over sin, over Satan, and over death. Father, I pray that we can go forth rejoicing in this hymn of victory because of all that you have done for us. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.